emotions we are currently experiencing. I am mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, intellectually, and academically developed and acutely aware of the condition of African people throughout the entire world. We don't want fortune, we don't want popularity, we want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Welcome to another episode of 1919 Radio and the third episode of our Black Geographies podcast series. My name is Mohammed and I'm your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Simone Brown, Associate Professor in the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She is also Research Director of Critical Surveillance Inquiry with Good Systems, a research collaborative at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as the author of the 2015 book, Dark Matters, on the Surveillance of Blackness. In this conversation, we discuss the historical origins of surveillance and biometrics and its relationships to Black studies, Fanon, ideas of prototypical whiteness and Blackness, and the post-9-11 surveillance state and its implication for Black people. I hope you enjoy the show. My first question is, uh, what do you mean by surveillance, S-O-U-S, valence, and how does it relate to surveillance? This is this is a great question. And for definitions, you know, often when I'm teaching, um, we get to the definition of surveillance probably by the end of the class as opposed to at the beginning, because I see it as basically the operating system of the, you know, how we're governed, of the world that we're living in um, is around uh, surveillance. And so I wanted to to put this work into conversation with surveillance studies and to think about my own citational practices there. And so surveillance actually comes from a researcher, I think they, Steve Mann at the University of Toronto. And he had this kind of um, uh, an eight point almost compass or mapping of the way various forms of valence operated. And what struck me was this concept of surveillance, which he saw as, you know, the counterpoint or contrapuntal to surveillance, like the idea of undersight. Um, but when he was describing it, um, he mentioned, um, you know, this one particular time when basically like everybody had a camera, it seemed kind of around like the 17, 1800s. And I was thinking about the absenting of slavery and, uh, and basically it's afterlife when we think about um, surveillance. And so I wanted to, um, you know, really think of it as as the ways the black knowing black ways of knowing and surviving um, and uh, around questions of not questions but actually life under surveillance and um, and so that's how I you can think of it as the counterpoint to surveillance but I also wanted to say that black ways of understanding can't be so easily mapped onto these um, Cartesian logics, like one camera plus two cameras, no camera, you know, these kinds of things are not, it's basically, I, I, you know, the, the idea of the Rastafari overstanding, like how do you understand uh, survival um, in systems of, of, of incarceration? 
of systems of enslavement, uh, of systems of, of, of racial capitalism. And so that's how I wanted to, to think about it, that we can't be, um, you know, uh, Cesare has a, a, a quote, like we have been branded by Cartesian logics or something like that. And to think about how um, to disabuse us of that understanding of surveillance is to really think about how, um, in my particular book, looking at the archive of slavery, but contemporarily about how people contend and challenge um, and really demand different um, from, from the system that we have now of exploitation. Uh, what were lantern laws and what are their legacy in modern surveillance systems and studies today? So lantern laws were these... So, New York in particular is where I was looking at in the 1700, early 1700s, um, there's records of a law that regulated the movement of, uh, they said Negro Indian um, slaves in the nighttime. So basically this was a law that was put into, put into place that if any black or indigenous person was walking after dark um, in New York City and they weren't in the company of some white person, then they were mandated to carry with them a lit lantern. And so you could think of the lantern as a kind of a prosthetic a supervisory device, but something that um, you know was mandated that it had to be carried. And if someone was found um, not accompanied by a white person and without a lantern, they can then be subjected to being, you know, uh, arrested, um, taken to the to the to the gall or to the jail. And so. Um, that is what the lantern law is. And this continued um, in spaces like Boston, continued into the 1800s. And, uh, you know, we can think about the kind of modern ways in which, you know, light functions as a supervisory device. Or similarly, you can think about like how stop and frisk operates. And so the idea that without, you know, kind of governing black mobility, governing walking while black, <laughs> existing while black, breathing while black has long uh, histories. And I think Lan the Lantern Laws, you know, points um, to that. And, you know, a, a, a simple kind of, not simple, because these are all complex, but, you know, especially now in these moments when people are learning online or working from home, you have systems like uh, Proctorio, which are these kind of um, algorithmic monitoring software to make sure people aren't cheating. And cheating looks like looking away from the camera, right? So there's a camera that monitors you while you're taking your LSAT or your exam or whatever it is. And there've been so many cases that arose within the past year of, you know, um, black folks that they were, you know, they had to shine a light in their face so that their face could be registered by this kind of automation facial recognition. And so you see then that light becomes again, a kind of disciplinary um, uh, device. Yeah, and that's and that not showing up basically like criminalize you like they say you're, mm -hmm. you're teaching when it's like who's who are they developing these technologies to 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 serve best what kinds of bodies become mm -hmm. like the prototype um for these things and and what bodies get produced as innocent and what bodies mm -hmm. get produced as guilty um because of you know the lighting infrastructure your book dedicated a chapter to analyzing and interpreting the book of negroes can you tell us what it was what significance it holds in american history at large and how did it play a role in the developments of modern biometric systems? 
So the Book of Negroes, um, this is a late um, uh, 18th century document. So at the end of the War of Independence, when the United States became the United States, um, there was a, a time in which um, a, a call was put out um, by the British that you know, um, enslaved folks could self-liberate themselves by, with the caveat, fighting for the British. And in doing so, um, they would then gain passage to places like, you know, what would become Canada, uh, uh, England, and all, what would become Germany. And so the Book of Negroes um, is a, a document of about 3,000 names of people who um, had registered um, and had traveled on ships uh, to, to these various um, uh, ports. Uh, so not only did they, you know, not only like soldiers, but people that did various type of support work, spies, cooks, these types of things. And so this is a historical document. I think it's, it's digitized now, but you know, at the time there's one in England, uh, Washington, uh, Nova Scotia, Canada, these spaces. And what happens in it, they would have people's names. Um, they would have uh, the name of the claimant, <laughs> the person who might make a claim that I own this black person who is free. And then they would also have various, you know, descriptors, um, uh, descriptors around race, around gender, around, um, the damage that was done to people's bodies around labor. Uh, they could say something like, um, you know, uh, a, a hand or a scar or these various types of ways of, um, you know, how the body was recorded there. And so you asked like, what significance does that um, uh, play in contemporary biometrics? And you could think about the Book of Negroes as basically the first um, state regulated and state mandated document for border crossing across the Canada and US border that particularly linked biometrics uh, to, um, to the right to passage. And you could think of biometrics simply as bio, the body, or have, having to do with the body, and metrics, a type of measurement. Um, and the biometric would be here, um, the, as I mentioned, like descriptions of somebody's uh, body. Um, and so this is uh, to see that this, you know, we talk about having um, national ID cards, fingerprints, um, facial recognition, all of these, perhaps even DNA in these passports, to think that those, those claims, those demands that you need uh, a body to prove your identity, um, so not who you say you are, but that your body will reveal a truth about you, despite what what you say. Um, that has like a long history in um, in the surveillance of blackness. When you think about uh, the Canada-U.S. border in particular, how does Fanon's work broadly influence your analysis? Hmm. When I was um, starting to to write this book, I was I wanted to tell a different story of surveillance and one that was not, um, you know, so much indebted to the work of uh, Michel Foucault. And I wanted to think about, you know, Fanon's uh, biography. And so I read, um, you know, so many of them. And, you know, one thing that was struck me was that he died, um, you know, in the in the United States. He had come to the U.S. Um, for treatment um, in uh, just outside. Of, in, in Maryland. And um, it was the CIA that was able to passage uh, him there. 
Um, and so I wrote to the, the CIA and the FBI, I did a Freedom of Information Act, and I had, you know, the name of his CIA handler, um, uh, Ollie Island, and I got basically, you know, nothing um, from, from the documents. There was a really um, thin file um, because, you know, they gave me that basically we can't confirm or deny, and if we were to confirm, we still have to deny what they call like the Glomar response. Um, and so I... So I was left with, you know, that the idea that Fanon was still an important, um, you know, sources and methods when it comes to uh, surveillance, when it comes to like the FBI or the CIA. But I found that, you know, Fanon will be an, an epidermalization, um, would be an important way of thinking about the ways that uh, race gets or blackness gets inscripted stereotypes of blackness. He says that I'm like battered down by Tom, by, um, by Tom Toms, by slavery, by sure good um, eating. Um, and the way that these kind of distorted white gaze, the the look a Negro distorts blackness and I and, and black people uh, and, and makes blackness a distortion. And so I wanted to think about how that applies to contemporary biometric technologies that distort, that are like, like the proctorio. Um, uh, the Proctorio surveillance uh, system. And so that is the, the kinds of, um, you know, the, the questions that I wanted to think about, the way that, um, you know, if we have uh, a prototypical whiteness, like the kind of body uh, and prototypical maleness, prototypical able-bodiedness, like what kinds of bodies are these technologies? Technologies designed uh, for. So the idea that in some earlier biometric technologies, you know, people who are elderly, so thinking of fingerprint technology, people who work with, um, you know, heavy hand washing, like uh, in the medical profession, or that work with chemicals, like, um, you know, mechanics, uh, artists, uh, nail techs, people that come uh, use their hands for labor, uh, massage therapists, their fingerprints, you know, might be illegible. So like, what does that say around, you know, questions of labor and, and who can, you know, enter into these categories to be enrolled in um, biometric um, technologies? Um, when you look at some of the earlier um, research and development um, of biometrics, they, they use like some really messed up, you know, languages that we, uh, and naming practices like uh, Negroid, Mongoloid. I mean, wow. this is like contemporary research from the 21st century uh, using these types of terms. And so um, if these are the terms and the, the forms and the kinds of ideologies that are shaping um, uh, biometric technology, facial recognition technology, then it's like, it's not a surprise um, when we see that there's, you know, so many problems into how they get put in to use to criminalize um, and dehumanize, you know, various populations that have um, historically been um, the category that has been dehumanized, uh, 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 criminalized. Uh, your book was released in 2015, and the surveillance state has continued to expand unabated. How has surveillance technology and opposition to it evolved since then? How do the uprising of last summer factor into the future directions of surveillance technology and studies? Yeah, and so when I was, uh, this is a great question, because so the book came out in 2015, I was writing it in, uh, you know, 
I think I started in about 2008 or so. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, right when it was coming out, you were seeing um, the, the movement for Black Lives had been, you know, recently formed. We have, um, you know, the, the uprisings um, in, and the Black insurgencies and demands uh, for abolition uh, that was took place in the summer of uh, 2020, along with, you know, the pandemic. Um, and so the... This, the technology, you know, has evolved, but it's also like the changing same. I remember seeing videos of like a, a, a chopper being flown, you know, quite low um, at the time of the um, the protest last summer as a form of, of threat, of violence, of in, intimidation, and, um, you know, and to, as a form of crowd dispersal. And so, you know, that is not a, um, a, a new technology that has been used in various, um, you know, uh, fields of warfare um, in the U.S. and out and outside of it. Um, so, you know, some things that have changed is that we have, you know, so many more people that are on the ground uh, recording, um, so many more demands that are happening, but also, you know, so for example, I, um, there was a time around maybe around 2016 uh, in, in the US and also, you know, in Canada as well, too, where the response was, you know, give a cop a camera <laughs> in the yeah, idea of like, let's have like, you know, body worn cameras um, uh, for police, which really gives which really is, is, um, you know, a kind of police reform that really puts more money into those that um, produce those products like um, uh, the company that was formerly a taser and mm -hmm. into uh, policing budgets. But I'll, I'll tell you like uh, something that I, I recently um, uh, has been happening. So people, okay, we're gonna film the police. We're gonna have records. We're gonna have this kind of viral black death that is, wow. um, you know, basically like lynching photography that is that yeah. has been circulated. Um, and so it was about last month I saw a video of this person recording uh, the cop and the, 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 what the, the, the cop was doing was playing like music, like um, the Beatles or country music. They've been doing this a lot around the country. And what it shows is like the, a kind of um, calculated knowledge of the, is it the Digital Millennium Copyright Act? So they know that people are gonna record them uh, and it's going to go on YouTube, wow. on Instagram, on whatever. But they know that the um, the content moderators, uh, or really the algorithms that say you can't put copyright music on YouTube, on Instagram, will then flag those video and it would be removed. So they're like, record me all you want, <laughs> you know, but we're, you're not going to make this go viral. You're not going to be able to put it online. And so it's kind of like whack-a-mole with the way that people, you know, um, uh, one up and challenge uh, these uh, uh, surveillance uh, practices when it comes to um, you know policing uh, in in particular. So the, I guess when you talk about you know the the future directions, I, I am really like. The, the work that, it, that is being done by abolitionists, by movement for mm -hmm. black lives that continues to do that work, that is the, that is the, that, that is the, that has to be the demand, right, for abolition. Yeah. And that has to be um, the future, knowing that, you know, it's, um, it's not like, oh, we need to get more technology. You know, we gotta just stay one step ahead of, of the cops or the state 
or ice or whoever it is about like let's let's make let's let's make demands for 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 something outside of this system, imagine something different. And that's why I think like the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, of Marion Kaba, and so many others have been, you know, really continue to teach me about, uh, you know, how to, to live and to dream abolition. Um, my question is, what kind of impact has the post 9-11 war on terror had on the material conditions of Black people and Blackness at large? And how about specifically Black women in this context? Mm. Yeah, so there was, so prior to, I mean, it was right in 2001, the summer um, in Atlanta, uh, a whistleblower who was working with, you know, what would be become the TSA, it wasn't called the TSA until um, after, um, you know, this uh, omnibus uh, bill that the US um, put through called the Patriot Act. But she was a whistleblower to show how black people were being, um, uh, you know, criminalized at the airport, even though they were the ones that they weren't the ones that were, you know, trafficking uh, in, uh, you know, uh, contraband and other types of things in from her um, experience. And so how has that changed? It's the, it's, it's the changing, you know, it's the changing scene. Um, and, but one, one, maybe one example, and I, you know, even though I am Canadian, I think a lot of my references are U.S. because I've been living in the U.S. for, um, you know, quite some time, but it was about, um, it, I think it was 2016 that some documents um, were leaked um, to the press. Um, these were um, FBI um, and Department of Homeland Security training documents, but they came up with this new category. Well, not so new because you know black people have been criminalized. Uh, you know, at least we have details from Cointel Pro and earlier. But this new category called the Black Identity um, Extremist, and I'm sure you've you know yeah. you've heard about it, and it really you know. Uh, demonstrates the state's, you know, continued ability to to index black resistance as criminal, and so you know one of the the um, I mean it's it's part and parcel of a whole slew of other types of practices um, that have happened um, that particularly focused on. Um, uh, Muslims, uh, black Muslims, black people who are Muslim, uh, like the idea of like, you know, the kind of build a terrorist that you have, like the, the I, that, that, that's not that the uh, FBI did, what they called it, create and capture, where they wow. would basically, the, the making of an informant, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so you have, um, you know, people that would be um, in, uh, informants, but also um, agents that would be in mosques, basically trying to inveigle people to, um, to criminalize themselves. And so that was called create and, create and capture. And so that is, you know, um, you know, the kind of parcels of the methods and sources that have been used prior to 9-11 and even um, continually. We know that um, the, the kinds of, you know, we have you know, the films that have been coming out, the documents that have been coming out about, you know, uh, Fred Hampton, uh, the film recently, but also the, the FBI uh, FOIA releases um, of the various ways that that movements um, ha are, have been and are continued to be, you know, infiltrated um, with disinformation as well too. Um, and you're seeing that, you know, of course, more and more now, especially when we have things like um, uh, social media. Um, and, uh, you know, various types of like, you know, bots 
and other types of uh, ways that there's uh, disruption, disinformation, and ways that uh, Black freedom struggles continue to be um, uh, a problem for uh, a white supremacist state. Mm -hmm. Uh, My next question is, what is prototypical whiteness and how does it play a role in the development and accuracy of surveillance technology? What do you mean when you say it is, uh, to quote, reliance on dark matter for its own meaning? So, yeah, that's a great question. And I was using, I use that to think about um, uh, biometric um, technology. And so I guess like a short primer on uh, biometrics uh, basically can be used for um, three purposes. Um, uh, it, identification, um, who are you? Uh, in the face in the crowd. It can be used for verification. Are you who you say you are? Are you the person whose unique biometric is held in this ID card or this passport or um, automation? Uh, is anybody there? And automation is like, you know, when you go to a public washroom and you use a touchless faucet and you run your hand, you know, mm-hmm. over the um, uh capacitative sensor to kind of get the water to run. And sometimes uh, it's a structural design that the water doesn't run for my hand when I wave it in front of it. And this happened to me in Toronto this summer, going into the stores where they had those automated um, hand disinfectants. And I had on like, I've tried to be fashionable and I had on like black gloves, like black plastic gloves, um, you know, whatever latex gloves and it wouldn't work at all. Right. And because it's like how it's being reflected or again, it's like the, you know, the need that you say you have to use a ring light so that your face can be read by this software to answer the question, is anybody there? Of course, you're there. My hand is there. But what kind of hand was it designed to expect? And that is like the prototype of of whiteness. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, so that's what I mean about like those for whiteness a white prototypicality to exist, it has to have that counterpoint. Um, and that counterpoint is the face is like, is like the, sometimes it was like um, iris, uh, the colored part of your eye. You'd, you'd go up to, you know, this is more of an invasive, a, a kind of um, mm-hmm. more intimate um, uh, kind of te- biometric technology is iris recognition. But there were um, times when the technology was designed that it could not uh, register um, brown irises, just blue. You know what I mean? Who designed something to yeah. just just for white faces, just for blue eyes? Well, we know who's designed something. People who have white faces and blue eyes. Like who? What is the um, you know the training data? that they that they use they kind of sometimes people want to blame it on the training data oh we only use this color eyes or these people well it's actually who's designing that data set that didn't even like uh uh rather absented other people from being um you know making this technology something that could be they could be legible in and so you know when i say that um it's reliant on uh dark matter for its own uh meaning meaning i think we could, could extend that to think about, um, you know, the category of, of whiteness, um, relying on um, uh, uh, the dark, 
a blackness, what gets um, categorized, and then we go back to you know your question about um, uh, Fanon when he says I am splattered by black blood. They you know rendered my body back to me um, in triplicate. Um, so this is like the stereotypes, all of these things um, that have long histories in in literature, in film, in you know uh, you think about the um, uh, the killing of uh, Philando Castile um, mm -hmm. a few years ago where his uh, his partner, um, uh, Diamond Phillips, uh, was recording it for Facebook, and the cop said um, uh, it was because of his wide-set nose. You know, he was wow. looking for somebody with a wide-set nose. All of these, you know, um, uh, I guess stereotype is the shorthand, but, you know, a lot of work went, goes into producing and reproducing and continuing these stereotypes, and, um, and so that is uh, one way in which biometric technology does that. And the idea, it's like, um, uh, I forgot the name of the person here, uh, Meredith Broussard. And she talks about um, techno chauvinism, like, you know, mm -hmm. it's the technology that's that's going to save us. The um, This is her critique, right? So the critique is like a kind of, uh, you know, people saying that the technology is is always right. It's truth. It's, it's what's going to liberate us. Um, and it's so steeped in all of these, you know, uh, histories uh, in its own formation, um, in, in the, the formation of these technologies that, you know, we can't discount um, uh, colonialism. We can't discount uh, slavery. We can't discount genocide uh, when we think about, um, you know, uh, the states in which these technologies uh, are, are created in. What is uh, one thing, one concept that came up was white gaze and the black gaze. Can you compare the two? Mm, yeah, let me, let me, no, there is. I'm just thinking of like an answer that might be, you know, somehow interesting or um, relevant. Um, and it basically, I feel like it's, you know, some of the same, the, I don't want to always rely on phenom because there's so many things uh, about that, 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 you know, whatever, but like, what does, it's, it's not like white people and black people looking, but like all these things, all these histories that shape, um, uh, that shape the white gaze. Uh, and so you had, um, uh, you know, right now, uh, this week in Minneapolis, we have the case of uh, the cop who killed George Floyd. Uh, we have the um, the twenty year old um, Dante Wright who was who was killed, uh, murdered by a cop. And the reason for the stop was um, it's illegal to have, or you know, they can. This is not the reason. This is like the alibi given afterwards, right? But the, the, the excuse is that you know it's illegal to have an, an air freshener on your rearview mirror, which is also illegal in Ontario, Canada, um, as well too. But that becomes the you know the justification for the stop. So it's not about like uh, uh, literal seeing, but like how is um, this kind of oversight, um, mm -hmm. uh, when you think about like surveillance, guards, all of these things, how are these ways of seeing blackness, of reading blackness as always and already um, uh, criminalized or some type of negative racialization, um, uh, a product of, of the white gaze? Okay. Hmm. I mean, that could be one, one way of seeing it. Maybe like, 
you know, I think maybe a, a, another example, uh, uh, which I, I used at the end of the book, uh, was, um, you know, these two workers were testing out uh, a camera at a, um, a store. Uh, this was a HP camera that was, you know, also had automation. And we, you might use this for, you know, a conversation that we're, so many of us are having now on Zoom or whatever. And so the camera would be able to like pan and move um, mm -hmm. as the person was um, using it, making for like a good user experience, you know, supposedly. And so one worker, um, Desi called himself Desi and the other worker, uh, he, Black Desi and White Wanda, they would both use it and the camera would like, you know, um, move and work perfectly for Wanda, but for Desi, it was not able to like pan, shift or tilt um, or um, anything. And so those are, uh, you know, two separate ways in which, or two ways in which one design for the computer was only made um, useful for one particular um, type of body. Um, and so like that is uh, the, uh, the white gaze or white way of white ways of knowing of like placing whiteness or white bodies or lightness um, as like uh, the prototype is 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 one way. Another thing is like, you know, we've been seeing so much of like um, permit Patty or, you know, Karen at the calling on the barbecue or, you know, something. Um, and the way that, you know, uh, you know, Karen is a cop and the way that the, the policing, uh, that becomes another way of like, you know, using 9-11 or sorry, not 9-11, the 911 number as like, you know, uh, a policing customer service as mm. a right, as a demand um, uh, is, is one way of like, yeah, so I think I'm kind of just getting that, like the white gaze is about um, about governing and policing who is in and out of place. It's policing uh, categories of, of, of race um, uh, that is, um, you know, people are making this, it can no longer, it cannot be sustained. Like this is mm -hmm. like, this is, it's, it's it, we, we need to demand a whole new world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh my my next question is how can we as black people mitigate our vulnerability to the surveillance state and the also now proliferating privatized surveillance regimes it's 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 an uphill battle you know when we mm -hmm. think about uh you know mass incarceration um you, you know it it is it is really a, a, an uphill battle but the models i think have to come from you know um mutual aid um, and, and, and knowing that the state is not going to save you. And I think the example for that is, you know, what happened in a space, um, like Texas, uh, and, and, and so many other spaces as well too, um, just earlier this year, uh, when, you know, when we see that, that climate change could look like people dying, People, well-resourced people even, you know, having to break down their, their fences and burn their furniture because they're, they, to survive. And what people relied on in those, in those times are the networks that were already in place of mutual aid to get unhoused people who were outside living uh, into, 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 into hotels, into shelters, um, and so get people food all of these ways that um, the, the surveillance state will just, uh, this is what Ruth Gilmore calls organized abandonment, it will just continue to abandon. And mm -hmm. so the way to, um, to, to challenge that I think is, is collective, 
uh, it's about abolition and it's about mutual aid. On the, on the flip side, you know, we don't have to have everything. Like I, the Super Bowl commercial uh, with um, Michael B. Jordan, that mm -hmm. was, you know, he was basically voicing the stalker state, um, what Hamid Khan calls the stalker state, of basically voicing one of these home digital assistants like uh, Alexa, right? So he was an mm -hmm. Amazon Echo or something. And sometimes it's really, you know, cheap or uh, easy to use our fingerprint or our face to secure our devices. But we have to continually ask, like, you know, what happens to our data? Um, if it's who or who is it being sold to? And if it's not being sold, like who is it being shared or traded or rented to um, when we surrender these things, you know, for uh, convenience or so-called uh, security? So, you know, sometimes it's, it's good to take a pause on, um, you know, the new, new or the hot new thing um, mm -hmm. and think about, you know, what are the potential, you know, harms of these things. And, you know, for me, uh, you know, sometimes it's just like, oh, there's just so much stuff to how am I going to, you know, manage all of these passwords or, you know, like, like mm -hmm. rather than writing them down on a piece of paper or, you know, what's the big deal if I just use, you know, iMessage rather than, you know, some type of secure um, messaging system. And, you know, the, there's a lot of times people say things like, well, if you've got nothing to hide, then, you know, what's the problem? And those types of answers are so individualized and require like a, like a really involved and deep investment that you're like, you're on your own here. You just have to concern yourself with yourself. And what got me to, you know, to think about really um, being mindful about my own kinds of security when it comes to communication is like, what happens to, um, you know, the students that I speak to that are um, at risk that could be, um, you know, without uh, state documents. Uh, what happens when I put them at risk because of the way that I might be, um, you know, uh, sloppy or not concerned with, um, you know, secure digital communications. So to think about like the larger kind of community concerns, not just with like using something like Signal or, you know, end-to-end -end encryption with like WhatsApp or whatever, but like to think about, um, not yourself only, but like other people that you are in community with that you might not even know. Like we, I'm in community with, you know, the, the person I could see outside my window right now. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, for my final question, I would like to flip the question you posed in your conclusions back onto you. What happens when blackness re-enters the frame? What is the frame and how is it necessarily reframed by censoring the conditions of blackness when we theorize surveillance? Yeah, did, uh, the thing is like, did blackness ever leave? <laughs> That's a really good question. And that question came from, um, you know, the same, uh, the same like uh, Des Desi who was like using the um, HP computer. And he says, watch what happens when my blackness enters the frame. Um, and what happened is that the technology like did not work for him. It wasn't able to capture him. And what's like revealing about that is like, you know, 
to get us to think about what it means to, to be um, uh, uncaptured or illegible, like there might be something liberatory about opting out or not, not calling for demands for, you know, we have to make facial recognition like work for everybody. Like tech equity is not about all of us being able to be, you know, managed and mm -hmm. governed by Google or, you know, whoever it is. And so, that question about like what happens when we you know enter the frame was in in that case like you know for this like little book was like to put um, black studies in conversation with surveillance studies because I found that at the time and this has like changed so much in the last you know few years or so is that there was a real absenting to like how the conditions um, that that of of, of black folks, of black people uh, uh, globally in the di diaspora, we're not being factored in to how we think about, you know, surveillance as a post 9-11 formation without thinking about how like the Panthers um, and other groups uh, and other people were, you know, surveilled uh, uh, by the FBI um, long before um, you know, something like uh, the Patriot Act. So you're thinking about like CLR James, uh, you know, having a, a, a huge, uh, the FBI having a huge uh, file um, on him and, you know, various other um, uh, 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 writers, uh, liberation uh, theorists and, and other people. And so, um, yeah, I, I just think it's, it, there's, there's so much to learn about and to think through and to, and to, and to move with when we think about, you know, um, you know, what happens when we center the conditions of, of, of black people, um, when we when we think towards, you know, uh, liberation. On that note, do you have any um, suggestions for books, media um, that uh, our listeners would be able to get more involved into learning more about surveillance studies and the inter and uh, the work that you do? Yeah, I um, so this this week I taught um, Nicole Fleetwood's um, Marking Time um, uh, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration. And this was like a really, you know, um, uh, careful and she talks about the methodology of care work of the way that um, carceral aesthetics, how people who are um, incarcerated um, mark things like uh, penal time time and time in, uh, in, in prison, uh, using, uh, you know, what kinds of what she calls penal matter, like what kinds of ways are people creating art in clandestine ways um, to critique, to survive, and to, and to, to, to get through um, uh, being in, incarcerated, people making art in solitary confinement. And I thought that was, you know, a really um, fantastic um, book. There's a, a film that came out a few years ago called um, Nas and Malik. Um, and Maybe it's not like the greatest film in terms of things, but I thought it really got to, you know, what we talked about, about this, um, the way that, um, you know, the FBI um, has been and continues to surveil um, uh, uh, Muslims uh, in New York City, and not only the FBI, but the NYPD at the time, um, through, um, you know, acts of um, infiltration um, and uh, other types of surveillance. Uh, and there's also, you know, some really great documentaries. I like These Streets. Um, um, which is looking at, um, you know, um, 
uh, movement for Black Lives activists. Um, there's a really older documentary called um, Life and Death by Stephanie Black that looks at um, you know structural adjustment policies and and how they affect um, uh, life in Jamaica. And I think that you know you think like surveillance, structural adjustment, like the the, the Brentwoods, um, whether it's like the World Trade Organization and the IMF is definitely about um, you know uh, surveillance and so and 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 governance and management and uh, neo-colonial uh, relations and so I think those are you know uh, a few texts that I would suggest.